Well, open your scriptures today. We're going to continue in our study of First Peter. Uh, today, actually, we're going to be looking, Lord willing, at verses 17 to 19. But I want to pick up the reading today back in verse 13 because it's, we're looking at a connection of verses that are talking about spiritual growth as believers, about living as disciples. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Guide us as we have this time in your word. Through your Spirit, take the things that you've revealed and make them plain to us. Help us to understand them in our minds. Help us to recognize in our thoughts and our attitudes the application. And then enable us through your indwelling Holy Spirit as we step out in obedience to it. Give us alertness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, we've been talking about growing up in the faith, uh, moving forward as disciples in the Lord Jesus Christ, having found such a great salvation. Now God says, let's build on it. Let's move forward. Salvation, as wonderful as it is, is intended by God to be but the beginning of his great plan for us as now his children. We were saved to be growing into disciples, serving the king. Uh, Now, Always, when we start talking about growing as believers, we have to always be cautious that we don't drift into thinking that our salvation is dependent on growth, or somehow uh, we're not truly saved unless we find ourselves very productive disciples. Our salvation, as we reminded ourselves in the first hour, is focused solely on our response to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is what gives us right standing with God, forgiveness, the clothing of the righteousness of Christ. Please, let's keep remembering that, and that's the reason monthly we emphasize that, even when passages of Scripture we may be studying are not, just so that we keep that straight. But having said that, that doesn't make growing in Christ unimportant. God is very interested in our growth. That's why the estimate has been somewhere around nine-tenths of the New Testament is about growing in Christ, not about being saved. Uh, There's emphasis by space. And God says, okay, listen, most of what I want to talk to you about, after you've come to know Christ, you've got a whole life ahead of you. This is what I want you doing. This is how I want to be working in your life, how I want you working with me. Christian growth. Verses 13 to 21, actually, we read through verse 19 today. Uh, 
talk about this growing process. And we've encountered some fundamental commands related to that. The first of those was preparing our minds for actions. Uh, literally the girding up of our minds, tucking in our minds, getting our thoughts under control, getting our hopes focused properly on salvation and its promise both now and forever, not on some temporal outcome, some prosperity or something like that, getting our hopes focused correctly. Otherwise, if our minds aren't tucked in, we could stumble over our thinking. Uh, The second thing we looked at last week was being holy in all of our conduct, that God calls for us to choose to act in a holy manner. He won't make that choice for us as his children. We have to make the choice. Uh, Once we make that choice and step out in obedience to the holiness that he's calling us to, his indwelling Holy Spirit then enables us to carry out the choice because we could not carry it out effectively unless we had power beyond ourselves. And, of course, that's why being filled with the Spirit is so central to that whole process. We need the Holy Spirit's enablement. But the Holy Spirit will enable us upon choice, not prior to choice. The work of the Holy Spirit prior to our choice takes the form almost exclusively of conviction that we're not being where God's called us to be. Uh, We're not stepping forward and surrendering our lives to him and moving forward in obedience. We talked also about what this being holy is all about, that that word translated holy means to be, first of all, set apart from, separated from sinful things, things contrary to the will of God. So that, in that sense, it's kind of a negative thing, things that you stay away from and are separated from. But it also has a positive dimension to it, which means being dedicated unto. That's why the Levites in the Old Testament were called the Holy Levites, because they were dedicated, God set them aside and dedicated them to service. The holiness meant focus on effort and involvement and service, dedicated to that task. So it not only was staying away from certain things, it was moving toward other things, being who God has called us to be. Two choices were involved last week that we looked at. Number one, choosing not to be conformed to the old man, those inner passions. Uh, The same word conformed that we found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we're commanded not to be conformed to the world, the system around us. He says, don't conform your behaviors. Don't be be adapted to uh, the old passions that are in your life. Instead, uh, be conforming to Christ, conforming to God's truth, God's word. We have choice involved. We also saw that the challenge to us was to be holy in all that we do. That true holiness in the Christian walk and the Christian life is a holistic thing. We can't come before God and say, well, I'm going to try to be holy in these three things, and these other 12 I'm just going to leave till later. Uh, It doesn't work that way. We, We make a commitment to pleasing God and living a holy life. It's a holistic commitment. No, we'll still fall on our face at times in that commitment. And we need to confess our sin, as the first chapter told us, and and then get up and keep moving on. But we cannot begin at piecemeal. He's either going to be Lord or he's not. And so holistic lordship or a holistic holiness, being holy in all that we do. Our task is to have all of life underneath the surrender to the Lord. And the question is, well, why would we do that? 
And, uh, and the motive for doing it, he ended with last week. We're to be holy because God's holy. And the line of rationale here is like father, like son. In other words, he's our heavenly father. He's adopted us into his family because of our response to what his son did for us on the cross. We're in that unique privileged position. Here's how the father lives. Here's how the son lives. We're supposed to look like that. We're supposed to live like that. It's a strong argument. God says, reflect the values of the new family. That's what I'm calling for you to do. Be like the family. Be like the father. Uh, Not that we would become God, of course, but that we could reflect his holiness, his righteousness, in the ways that we choose to live. Well, preparing our minds for action, being holy in all of our conduct. Now today, starting in verse 17, he says, I want you to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Uh, In addition to focusing our minds, in addition to committing ourselves in our conduct toward holiness, God says, I want you to have a certain attitude, a certain perspective. And that perspective is one of fear of the Lord. Because that perspective in life is fundamental to growing as a believer. So let's look at more of what this is about. He says, If you call on him his father who judges impartially according to each man's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's start off by reminding ourselves that the ability to call God our father is a unique privilege. The world around us loses sight of that because it's commonplace for them if they're thinking about God in any other way than a swear word, that they're thinking, well, God's the fatherhood of God, you know, brotherhood of man. That's how they view it. But the Bible has nothing to that. The Bible totally teaches the opposite. Uh, God, who is the creator, is not the father except for those who've been given the privilege of being able to be in his family. Notice how he puts it back in, uh, or in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, meaning Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but were born of God. In the third chapter of 1 John, when we had our study of that book together, in verses 1 and 2 it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it doesn't know Him. In other words, the world doesn't realize there's a difference. It just looks at humanity and says, oh, God's fatherhood of God. That's not true. The world doesn't recognize that distinction that the Bible goes to great lengths to make. He says, listen, the world doesn't understand it because it doesn't know Him. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when He appears we'll be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Here's the deal. Only those who have responded to the gospel can legitimately talk to God and talk about God as Father. He is, but he is the creator, not the father, of the rest of mankind. Well, I don't say that to diminish his creator role. He is king of kings, lord of lords. He is, he is the God, the creator God. But he is the creator, not the father, of mankind in general. And by the way, 
if you've been interacting with, at, at times on that issue with people in the world around you, you will find that there are few truths that infuriate them more than that truth. I can't tell you the number of times over the, over, since, the, since I've been on the college campuses at the end of the 1960s that in those discussions where they weren't debates per se, but fury would come into the eyes of people, they would see it as some sort of denunciation of them that I would talk to them about the fact, well, you're, listen, God, it's a privilege to be able to be called a child of God. It doesn't come because you were born in America. It doesn't come because you're a human being and not a dog. It comes because you've repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just their eyes would get steely and there would be just fury inside. Because they want to believe that inherently there's something about them that's good enough to be a child of God. Brothers and sisters, that's our very problem. There's nothing good in us that makes us a child of God. That's the reason he had to send his son to die for us. And I think Christians far too often have let that just sort of flow by the wayside because they don't want to alienate anybody. (laughs) Listen, nobody becomes a child of God unless they've been alienated to realize they aren't. You know, I'm not saying being nasty to people. I'm just saying being truthful. And often in my conversations in the university world, it was like, listen, I'm not trying to put you down. What I do is I would love to have you become a child of God. And that isn't going to come because you turn over a new leaf. It's not going to come because you decide to start going to church. It's going to come because you accept what God has said about your true problem, that you are a sinner and hopelessly separated from him as a result. And you need to, you need to have a solution to that. And God, who loves you, gave you a solution to it by sending his son into this world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. And if we believe in him, as John 1, verses 12 and 13 tells us, that as many as received in him who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Brother, I'd like nothing better than for you to have that right. I'm not trying to exclude you from something. You're already excluded from it. I'm trying to get you in it. I'm trying to help you understand how to find God, how to find salvation how to become a true child of God. Well, if we're going to call God Father and have the right to do so, uh, which is only for those who are redeemed now, there are implications of doing that. And he says here, one of the implications of that is that if we call God our Father, then we better conduct ourselves with fear in this world. Isn't that the way the passage unfolds? He says, listen, if you do this, if you are responding to God that way, then to conduct yourself with fear. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to conduct ourselves with fear? In Proverbs 1.7, we read these words, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, and they certainly despise that challenge. But that is the fundamental challenge. The very beginning point is to have fear of the Lord. That's where true wisdom starts. It's basic to salvation. No one really becomes a Christian until they really have, they might not call it fear of the Lord, but that's where it begins. Fear of the Lord in the sense that they realize that they're sinners and separated from him. They realize there's nothing I can do about this. That God calls us to account for it and and he sent his son to die for us. You see, there's a fear of God and awe of God that's built into that. And God says you can't go anywhere until you get that. I mean, that's where you've got to start. 
the fear of the Lord. We can't get further without that fear. Now, this word translated fear, conduct yourselves with fear, in 1 Peter, is the Greek word phobos, which literally means to have a sense of awe, wonder, or dread. Uh, Now, the English word phobia comes from that Greek word, by the way. Uh, But the problem is, as can often happen, uh, that's that's, that's more of a problem than a help for us. Why? Because in English, we use the word phobia to describe some sort of irrational, illogical fear. Boy, if you only get some good counseling, this phobia can be solved, you know. Uh, that's, that's how we use that term. And while the Greek word phobos does have at times in the context an idea of dread tied to it, that's just a small piece of it. Context tells us what the idea is, and in the Greek The idea is awe and wonder and dread as appropriate in response to the God who is really there. The context of a passage in Greek, the context of a a sentence of a paragraph in the Greek, I'm not talking just the Bible, I mean it's meant in the Greek language, always gave you the insight into what was meant by phobos. You knew by the sentence, you knew by the paragraph, what Phobos was all about. Sometimes the paragraph or the sentence, the conversation, would help you to see when they're using the word Phobos, they're talking about alarm and terror, you know, a a true dread and apprehension. You know, that's sometimes clear in the context. You would know it. They didn't need an exposition to know it. They just knew, okay, this conversation is making this point real plain to us. But at other times, the word phobos in conversation or in the writing, and certainly in the scriptures, had the meaning of reverence and awe. So you see the range that was there. So the Greek, as I come back and say, the, Greek, the English word phobia is, a, is unfortunately uh, a, a, not a help to us in trying to best understand what it means to have fear of the Lord. Reverence and respect. You know, the NIV, as one example, translates this particular portion in 1 Peter by using the phrase reverent fear to translate phobos. And I think they did a good job on that. They added a word, in a sense. It's one Greek word. They added two English words. But because fear can have a range of perspective within it, to say reverent fear really got a hold of the context. That's what's being talked about here, a, a sense of awe respect, sobriety about something or someone. That's the point. So if that's what reverent fear is, what the phobos means here, uh, how does this work out? How How does this mean? What does it mean to conduct ourselves with phobos, conduct ourselves with fear in this world? By the way, this word conduct uh, should that's a good place to start. The word conduct simply means to walk or behave in a certain manner. It's talking about your behaviors. You know, the, what are the what are the patterns of life you follow? That's this word conduct kind of describes that overall picture. Uh, what characterizes your walk, your acting, your attitudes? And he says, let this characterize how you walk, how you think. Characterize yourself with phobos. 
reverent fear. Number one, live, not just once in a while, but live in general with a sense of wonder at the privilege that's yours to actually be in God's family. To even be able to address him as father, you know. Uh, it's a privileged position. And so you remind yourself, well, I'm just in this privileged position. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve to be brought into God's family. Uh, if, if anything, deserved the very opposite. But undeserved mercy and grace in response to my response to the gospel has put me in a place where God's adopted me into his very family. And so I can respond to him now as father. More, I can respond to him as Abba Father, which is the Aramaic idea of close, endeared relationship to a, to a physical father in a family. I can respond to God, not just with some theological word, Father, but with Abba Father. He, he, he is my father. Not just my creator, but my father. And so, conducting myself with fear means as I'm walking in this world, I'm walking in the wonder that I've been in family that is totally a privileged place to be. It also means that I'm walking with an understanding for, an awe for, and a respect for who my Father really is. In other words, I'm giving conscious thought over to the fact that, well, this is who God is. Lots of people have, have an idea of God in their mind, which is mostly idolatrous. And God's word gives us an insight into who God really is. And God says, I want you to reflect on that. Not that every second of every day you're focused on theological concepts, but nonetheless, you're reminding yourself that often maybe attitudes and views you had about God were wrong. Then the more you learned of God's word, the more you saw who he really is. And so you keep reminding yourself, that's the God I'm serving. That's the God I have the privilege of calling my father. I'm in, I'm in the family of that God. Conducting ourselves with fear has that idea connected to it. It also has the idea of having a sense of caution about displeasing him. Here's a question I want to pose to you. As you think about your life in this world, and life being conduct here, the attitudes, the actions, the orientations, is, is your life one that could truly be, and let's use the NIV's terminology here, is your life one that could truly be described as a life lived with reverent fear? That's what God wants for us here. He says, listen, I want your life to be one of reverent fear. I don't want you living in the English word phobia. I want you living in the Greek word phobos. I want your life to be this characteristic. Uh, is that what's true of you? And he then moves to two issues. I guess you could even call them motives for conducting ourselves with fear, with reverent fear. He says, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The first motive to be conducting myself with fear is that I'm knowing the truth about my inescapable accountability before that God who is really there.
We call on a father, he tells us here, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And by the way, since that's the father we call on, you and I would be lost if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because his impartial analysis of my life and your life means we would have been gone. Which is why the wonder of knowing Christ as Savior, God doesn't deal with me like I deserve any longer. He deals with me like Christ deserves. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. What wonder there is in that new covenant message. But I have to remind myself of that. Listen, this father, he's not like, you know, some doting grandfather. Some Santa Claus figure. He's the holy, righteous, wonderful God, but he's also this personal father. And he deals with me objectively and impartially. Therefore, I don't have any hope unless when he's seeing me, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying that now at 73 going on 74 years old, having been a Christian since I was 18. I'd have no hope at all, even based on a single week of my life. If when he looked at me, He wasn't ultimately dealing with me on the basis of the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to live in that constant realization. Wow. Believing the gospel changes everything. Because he's a God who has inescapable accountability for us, who judges impartially, unless something had happened to move us from condemnatory eternal judgment, we'd be in trouble. But... John 5:24 says truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes in me who sent me has eternal life he's, he doesn't come into judgment but he's passed out of judgment into life uh, in Jesus Christ that happens to us not because God's changed but our circumstances changed he's still the one who judges impartially but he is the one who sees the perfect life of Jesus credited to us, clothed on us, to use the word that Dwayne was using. Uh, clothed on us, you know, that's, 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 what we're, that's what he sees. Believing the gospel has moved us from condemnatory judgment before God. But brothers and sisters, what God is saying to us also here is, let's remember, it's still, he's still the God who judges impartially. Uh, the gospel has not moved us away from accountability for the stewardship of our life as a child of God, as a redeemed child of God. The gospel hasn't changed that accountability. It's not a question of salvation. That's a settled question if we know Jesus Christ as Savior. But rather, it's a question of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Have we pleased the Father with our life? We face... And accounting before God as believers. We've not at the great white throne judgment, thank the Lord, which eternal destiny is determined. Now, we don't even go there because we've passed out of judgment into life in response to the gospel. But brothers and sisters, 2 Corinthians 5 and other places talk to us about the judgment seat of Christ. The bema of Christ, which is not the great white throne judgment, where our lives face his scrutiny. That didn't go away. Uh, Not to surprise us, because who has a father in the natural sense who is really the father he needs to be 
who ignores the reality of the life of his child in their behaviors. There's an accountability in the best sense of the word there too. You know, it's like, I care so much about you, I care what you're doing. And we're going we're gonna to talk about what you're doing or what you did. That's the image that is coming to us about God. It's not judgment for sin, but assessment of faithfulness and fruitfulness. And that's supposed to cause us to conduct ourselves with fear, to take life seriously as redeemed children of God, to take it carefully. We must answer to the Heavenly Father for the stewardship of life. We have to answer to the Heavenly Father for what we've done with our new life in Christ, for the privileged position of being made part of His family, for the opportunities that He has given us in this world. That's what it means to be living in reverent fear. Think of how it puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read from verses 9 to 11. He says, Paul speaking, he says, So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the bema of Christ, not the great white throne judgment. But we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. And he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. (laughs) A cautiousness. Not a fear in the sense of phobia, but a wise cautiousness, a sobriety that says, oh, you mean God's going to ask me that question? Uh, Yeah, 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 that's right. He's going to ask you that question. Uh, And you're going to appear before him. And he goes on and he says, let's remember that his judgment of our life is impartial. What that means, literally, is that as I appear before him, and he asks those hard questions, as his redeemed child now, uh, he deals with me at that time on the basis of truth and accuracy. There's no playing favorites here. You know, because you're kind of like my favorite. I kind of give you a different, uh, a, a different accountability here. Uh, no, 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 no. There's no partiality with God. Our Heavenly Father says, well, you're all my children. Uh, None of you deserve to be there. It's all due to my love and mercy and grace expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death three on the cross. I've adopted you in my family. I'm going to hold each of you to the same standard. (laughs) Each of you have to answer the same questions. You're going to have to answer them before me. I refuse, this is God speaking, I refuse to overlook your life choices and actions as a believer. I refuse to overlook them. I will call them into account, not to find out whether you're saved or not. We passed out of that judgment into life. But because you must answer to me about it. You must answer to me about it. We have to answer for whether we served or didn't serve. One of the theologians put it this way, and I think they got right on the handle of it. They said, our time in this world as a redeemed child of God isn't some fantasy vacation with no responsibilities and accountabilities. Let me repeat that. It is not some fantasy vacation with no responsibilities or accountabilities. 
as a redeemed child of God. God takes our life in this world seriously. We have responsibility. So I said, what does it mean to live conducting ourselves with fear? Reminding myself of that fact. So I don't take life flippantly. I don't take it as some fantasy, doesn't matter how I live, doesn't matter what I do, kind of. No, no. <laughs> hey, serious stuff, brothers and sisters. Not because your salvation is in question, or you can somehow lose your salvation. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about having to deal with a Heavenly Father, an Abba Father, before whom we have to stand and answer some things, you know. That's Paul believed it very deeply because God had revealed that to be true. And he says, knowing that, I, I move forward. <laughs> I, I want to please the Lord in what I'm doing. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, learn what pleases the Lord. Now, why would anybody care if you had kind of an uh, indulgent grandpa out there who dealt with you? Because you don't have an indulgent grandpa, you've got a heavenly father who loves you and says, I take my, I take my father it's seriously here. Uh, I care about what's going on in your life. So that's the first thing. The second thing he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This second one, knowing the true cost that it took to save us is meant to also be the motivation to live and conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord. Now, next week, we're going to talk a lot more about that because these verses lead into that. And so today, I just want to touch on it because it gives us that second piece of the puzzle. Knowing the true cost of our salvation is meant to be a motivation for conducting ourselves with fear. Knowing you were ransomed is a reason to have reverent fear in the way we approach our lives. Why? Because if I know I'm ransomed, I knew it took nothing less than the life of God's own Son, the Heavenly Father's own Son, to save me. Nothing less than that could solve my impossible situation. And there's a soberness to that, isn't it? That's sort of looking at myself in the mirror and saying, Gary, you are in such bad shape. <laughs> the only solution to you was that Jesus lived and died and rose again. You didn't got any solution wasn't for that. There's soberness to that, isn't it? It's like, oh, that kind of pulls the rug out from underneath any ego issues here. Uh, hey, that's the reason. And then God says, listen, listen, that's not, that's not even enough. He says, remember that what was necessary to pay was the most costly price imaginable. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us that sign of the new covenant we talked about today. I mean, what, what's more precious than that? I mean, what, what in all of eternity is more costly, more precious then the very blood of the Word made flesh to dwell among us, the perfect one who died for us. So you think about that a little bit and say, that it took quite a bit here. You know, It, it took nothing less than that. And, and then as I'm thinking about it, he says, knowing you were ransomed, I'm reminded of the fact that 
Why did I need to be ransomed? Because I was involved in the feudal ways, he puts it here. <laughs> you were ransomed from the feudal ways that were inherited from your forefathers. Feudal, meaning of no use. The forefathers, the contemporaries, have no answer for us. Every answer they have for our human dilemma is futile. By the way, we encounter that same word in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection, and if the resurrection had not occurred, our faith is futile. Uh, Futile ways. God says, mind yourself, (laughs) the true cost of your salvation had to be there because not just you, but every other human being can only come up with what's futile, not, not what solves anything. Now, I'm not taking away from the fact that being created in the image of God, God allows us as human beings to do very remarkable things. But none of us can do anything to solve our ultimate eternal problem. That requires something. All we have is futile answers to that. Oh, be a little, be a little nicer, turn over some new leaves, or just convince yourself that what you're doing that you feel guilty about isn't wrong to do anyway. You know, the world has a lot of ways to try to address things. God says those are futile. I mean, they're not going to solve anything. Let's remember that our forefathers and mankind had no lasting answer to sin. That's why, remember, the passage began by talking about the prophets and the angels longing to look ahead to see how God was working all this stuff out. You know, even the angels longing to see, God, what are you going to do about this hopeless mess? You know, we don't know how any sinner can ever dwell in your presence. How is this going to work? You sent your son to die for him? They longed to see how. No wonder heaven celebrated it, the incarnation and at Bethlehem. God's answer is clear at last. Oh, wow. Well, much more to say in these verses and in the verses ahead here about the cost of our salvation. We'll wait till next week to examine those things more. What's the point? Conduct yourselves with fear. Don't conduct yourselves afraid to have assurance of salvation. But don't conduct yourselves as if you're on some fantasy vacation. God holds us accountable for how we conduct ourselves in this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. So thankful today again as we share in the Lord's Supper for the reminder that apart from what Jesus Christ had done for us, we were hopelessly lost. But now we passed out of judgment into life in him. But Lord, I thank you also for the reminder, even as redeemed children of God, that Life in this world matters. You care what we do. And you call us to certain forms of life. And you want us to grow as disciples. And you will ask us the hard questions about our choices as your children. Help us to fit all that together, Lord, and rest in the wonder of it. Thank you for this, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.